0: Over the last few weeks, I have been um, attempting to restore an old motorcycle at home. It's been a uh, weekly pursuit of mine. It is a uh, trivial pursuit, I'll, I'll give you that, and a dirty pursuit sometimes, and a laborious pursuit sometimes, but it's one that I truly enjoy. I think that we all have things in life that we enjoy pursuing. Some things are trivial, like the restoration of an old motorcycle, but some things are truly noble that we pursue. And and of the many noble pursuits, there are some that stand out in my mind that I think that would be important to you. We pursue things like faithfulness in our marriages. We pursue patience in our parenting. We pursue compassion in our ministries. We pursue contentment in our lives. But above all these things, all these pursuits, the true Christian, the true believer pursues something greater. We pursue something that transforms all other pursuits in our life. A true believer pursues sanctification. A true believer pursues a life that is set apart to honor the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. A true believer pursues a life that reveals how much Jesus is worth to us, according to Philippians one twenty-seven. In that pursuit of Jesus' glory and Jesus' honor, our perspectives and our motives in the pursuits of our marriages and our parenting and our ministries and our contentment in life are all transformed by God's grace for his glory. But they're all redeemed because of Christ. They're all transformed because of God's grace. We don't look at our marriages the same. We don't look at our parenting the same. We don't look at our ministry, our service the same.
1: We don't even look at our
0: contentment and our pursuit of contentment in life the same way when we come to faith in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. The Apostle Paul wants to remind us of that this morning. In Philippians 3, we're going to turn there again this morning, verses 1 to 16, we see in this text that we are reminded about what true believers pursue. Look with me at that reminder in the text this morning, beginning in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised of the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because because Christ Jesus has made me his own. to what we have attained. Only let us press on to what God's revealed. That's what he's saying. Only let us pursue this glorious truth. In chapter three, I mentioned this last week that, that Paul basically is doing something very didactic, very, very important to, to train and teach the church there at Philippi. He's reiterating what God had revealed in Philippians two twelve. There he told us that we will pursue Christ's exalting lives. We will press on in sanctification because it says there in verse 12 that God is at work in you. God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is what causes us to press on toward the goal of the upward call in Christ Jesus based on God's grace. And I mentioned last week that theologians call this pressing on, this pursuit... They call this progressive sanctification, which means that we are progressively daily being set apart by God's grace and conformed to Christ's image because of Christ's righteousness, because of Christ's life that's imputed to us, because of Christ's resurrection power that resides in all those who truly believe. That happens because we have been given new hearts. We've been regenerated. We now have hearts that delight in doing God's will, as it says in Psalm 40, verse 8. We delight in doing God's will because Christ's heart has now been implanted in our hearts. We have a new motivation. Christ's exaltation. That's what motivates us to press on in this glorious upward call of sanctification, to exalt the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, through our lives not just in our hearts sanctification is the outward manifestation of what's down deep in the christian's life what's down deep inside of us comes out of us through sanctification we pursue whatever brings christ the most glory and in Philippians 3, Paul reminds us of that. He reminds us that true believers press on toward the goal because, because the because statement is so important in this text. We press on toward the goal of the upper call because Christ has made us his own. What a glorious truth that is. Doesn't that motivate you to want to honor the one who saved you? That's how sanctification works. Sanctification is not legalistic observation of rules and rituals and traditions. Sanctification is the heart of a regenerated sinner rejoicing in God's mercy and grace that's manifest through Christ who made us His own by becoming like us to take our place, receive God's wrath, rise victoriously to impute to us His righteousness and peace forever. That's why I think Paul Reminds us of this here in this text. Paul sandwiches this, this text in between dealing with legalist and the licentious people. He talks about our sanctification. And he wants us to get it balanced. He doesn't want us to be legalistic in our sanctification. And he doesn't want us to live our Christian life in licentious sin. He wants us to be balanced. So, so Paul, for your outline, Paul, Paul does this. Paul reminds true believers to joyfully pursue sanctification by, number one, issuing a cautious exhortation there in verses 1 and 2, a cautious exhortation against legalism. And he reminds us to joyfully pursue sanctification, secondly, by making a careful comparison about our motivation in verse 3, about our motivation for sanctification in verse 3. And then Paul reminds us to joyfully pursue sanctification by, thirdly, by revealing a captivating confession about regeneration there in verses 4 through 11. And lastly, Paul helps us to joyfully pursue sanctification by repeating his confident declaration about his calling and our calling. He's repeating a confident declaration about our calling. In Philippians 3, 1 through 2, Paul reminded true believers To pursue, press on in sanctification by, number one, issuing a cautious exhortation about legalism. Look with me in verses 1 and 2 again. He says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. What Paul's doing here is he's reminding them of what he said in Philippians one twenty-seven and 28. Look over there. This whole thought process here in Philippians 3, 1 to 16 is actually a reminder of this little thought here in one twenty seven and 28. He says, "...only let your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you or see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel." And not frightened by anything or in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. He says, "I don't want you to be frightened in anything by your opponents. I want you to let your life be worthy of the gospel that God has revealed to you. Let it let it magnify the one who saved you. Don't be afraid of." These opponents who base their salvation on their ritualistic observances. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3, Paul issues a cautious exhortation to us because there are distractions to be avoided as we pursue sanctification. And the distraction in this text, as I mentioned last week, was this group of false teachers and their false teaching, these Judaizers, these opponents. These men taught that Gentiles had to be circumcised and keep old testament regulations not only to be saved but to be effective to be real christians to be sanctified they they've got to be circumcised they've got to follow these rituals and traditions that will make them real christians and in essence what they're saying is christ's work was insufficient you've got to perfect it through your obedience and paul says these these guys will distract even true believers Because they will lead you down a path to destruction and self-focus. In verse 2, Paul says, look out for the dogs. He categorizes them as dogs, as evildoers, as mutilators. The Judaizers mutilated their flesh and God's message. They did that by adding traditions and rituals and laws. They added those things to the gospel of God's grace. And Paul warns against this. In Galatians 3, turn there with me. Galatians 3, verse 1. In Galatians 3, 1-3, to Paul warned that this kind of thinking will distract us from pursuing the glorious truth of the gospel of Christ. It will distract us on our path to righteousness in the sense that it distracts us from trusting in Christ's righteousness. It causes us to focus on our own righteousness, which is faulty. It distracts us from pursuing and rejoicing And what Christ has accomplished, according to what he says here in Galatians 3, 1 to 3, he says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let them ask you only or let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? He says, look, there's a distraction here. This this trying to to be justified by your your actions, by your works, will distract you from Christ's work. You began this work in the Spirit. That's how it will be perfected, by the Spirit of God who works in us. And so, so Paul, here and in Philippians 3, warns us to look out for this kind of thinking. He warns us to look out for legalistic ideas in our pursuit of sanctification. See, what we we need to remember, and I think what Paul made very clear in all his epistles, is that only the gospel of God's grace has the power to set our affections upon holiness. It's only the response of the forgiven sinner's heart that will really lead us to walk in the path of righteousness. It will cause us to set our affections on the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates. But only grace will do that. Legalism makes us resentful of God's directions and boastful in our own actions. Rules and traditions cannot produce what Christ produced. Rules and regulations cannot produce love for others, love for God, holiness, sanctification, the pursuit of these things from the heart rather than the external act. Legalistic pursuits focus, we need to understand this, they, they focus on our performance. Legalistic pursuits focus on our performance and, and connected to that is the result of, of that which would be not the edification of others but the consumption of others for our exaltation. See, we, we rejoice... When others fail because we are superficially excelling. Rather than when grace gets a hold of our hearts and we see others failing and we come alongside them and help them bear their burdens by God's grace because we understand what it's like to be forgiven. Legalistic pursuits focus on our performance and consume others in order to elevate ourselves. According to Galatians 5. Go there with me. Galatians 5. Beginning in verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. That's impossible because we are sinners, right? So he says... You know, if, if, if you're trusting in your circumcision and not in Christ's circumcision, Christ's righteous fulfillment of the law, then you're cut off. It says in verse four, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. And the one who is troubling you? will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. It means cut the whole thing off. If they're going to say a little does a a lot to make you righteous, then why don't they just cut themselves completely off? Because they are not really following after Christ. They're following after their own elevated egos. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But notice this. See, first and foremost, these, these false teachers, these false ideas of pursuing legal, legalistic uh, uh, desires to, to elevate themselves, to gain a, a higher standing, that, that not only affects the legalistic teachers, but also those who are hearing this. Because he says, look, in verse 15, if, if you'd bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. See, the, the legalistic pursuit of righteousness based on your performance, causes you to step over others, step on others, consume others, bite and devour, and pick off the weaker brothers and sisters, elevating yourself. We do that. We look at some people externally and we say, man, if he was really a Christian, he wouldn't do this, watch this, go there, hear that, do this. But I do this, I do that, I I would never, I wouldn't, I wouldn't. What are we doing but biting and devouring the weaker brother? Rather than seeing him as the weaker brother in need of maturity, in need of mercy. What I find interesting is this distinction that that, that Paul even writes into this text. It's interesting in verse 15. He he uses the illustration of biting and devouring. And then when he talks about those who who actually are driven by the gospel to sanctification, he talks about them edifying or nourishing others later on in this text. See, gospel-driven pursuits focus on Jesus' performance, not ours. Gospel-driven pursuits of sanctification ends up nourishing others, not consuming others, according to Galatians 5.22. I think it's very significant that he ends in verse 15 on biting and devouring. And then begins here in this thought process of the spirit's work in our life as fruit bearing and fruit nourishes people. It sees the needs around us and pursues them. Verse 22 says, but the fruit of the spirit is love for the weaker brother. It is joy over the weaker brother. It is peace with the weaker brother. It is patience toward the weaker brother. It is kindness toward the weaker brother. It is goodness toward the weaker brother. Faithfulness to the weaker brother. Gentleness toward the weaker brother. Self-control in dealing with the weaker brother. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. If, if our pursuit of sanctification is grace-driven, gospel-driven, it's based on what Christ has done for all of us. And it will seek to nourish others. Legalistic pursuits is just the opposite of that. It seeks to elevate self and base our righteousness and our standing before God on our own efforts, our own performances, rather than Christ. And Paul's telling us in Philippians that a true believer needs to avoid this. Needs to avoid this distraction. And he's also telling us in Philippians 3 that a true believer can cautiously avoid the distraction of legalism by rejoicing over the gospel of Christ. Let me show you how he did that himself in Romans Romans 8. Here's an example of how Paul overcame... He overcame... Any distraction, it would lead to legalism. You you remember in in chapter 7 of Romans, Paul is confessing his weakness. He's confessing that he's doing things he shouldn't do. He doesn't want to do. But he's, he's, he's not going from that to, okay, now here's what I need to do. If I do this, this, and this, I'll be a truly spiritual Christian. Instead of focusing on his own performance... He considers Christ's performance. And he relies on this and he rejoices in this, and it causes exaltation of Christ and it nourishes others. Look what it says in Romans 8 1. After he's examined his life and seen that he has fallen short, he begins to focus on Christ. Look what it says. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says in chapter 7 I've blown it, I have fallen short, I have failed the Lord. But, good news, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here's why. Verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. How did he do that? By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Why did he do that? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled where? In us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. See, he's he's keeping his mind off the distraction of legalism by rejoicing over the good news that's found in the gospel here. In verse five he says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. That's the distraction. But those who live according to the Spirit, here's what they do. They set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. Legalism is destructive. It does not lead to salvation by faith in Christ alone. It leads to the self-righteousness that is developed in the heart of the sinner and makes him hard and prideful. And in the Christian, legalistic ideas lead to destruction and devouring of others so that you can exalt yourself above them. So he says, to set your mind on that is death. But to set your mind on the Spirit is life and peace. That's what flows out of the gospel. You rejoice over the life you've been given and you seek peace with all men. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Then he says, here's the distinction. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ Jesus is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That little phrase, he will also give life, it doesn't mean just physical life. He's actually saying he's going to give you life, the ability to live, the ability to live for the glory and honor of Christ. That's life. That's the result of focusing on the gospel and Christ's righteousness and Christ's performance and not your own. That leads to rejoicing. It leads to life. It leads to helping others. It leads to peace. And so he tells us we can cautiously avoid the distraction of legalism if we will turn our eyes to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Now, secondly, in Philippians 3, 3, Paul reminds true believers to pursue sanctification by, secondly, making a careful comparison about our motivation. Look what it says in verse 3. There's a careful comparison between The legalist in verse two and the true circumcision in verse three, For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. This is what motivates our sanctification It's that God has done something to us and in us so we don't have to trust in ourselves. We we can glory in someone else. We can worship because of what Christ has accomplished. We don't have to earn God's favor through our observances. In verse 3, Paul makes a careful comparison for us because we see that true believers can be distinguished from legalists. It's true. We can be distinguished. We are distinguished because there's something different that's residing in us. It's the Spirit of Christ that changes us from the inside out. It's not the... Pursuit of pleasing others or appearing spiritual to others that drives us. It's the pursuit of knowing that we have been purchased by Christ, therefore we pursue His, His honor and His glory through our lives. But legalists don't do that. Legalists boast in their outward performances, they boast in their appearance and their works. They are motivated by the praises of men and their pride. Not so with the Christian. The true believer is not like that. The true believer boasts only in Christ's work. And the true believer is only motivated and and distinguished by Christ's accomplishments, by what Christ has done in us and that affects us. It brings about humility in our pursuit and thanksgiving to God in our pursuit. That's what we really we see there in verse three. According to verse three, true believers worship by the spirit, glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. True believers give thanks and honor and praise to God by the power of the Spirit who now dwells in us. True believers boast in Christ's work, in Christ's accomplishments, in Christ's love. They glory in Christ alone, not in themselves. True believers humbly confess that we are insufficient to please God on our own and we need someone else. We put no confidence in our flesh. If we do anything right, we give praises to God and give thanks to Jesus who imputed his righteousness to us. So so what Paul's doing, I think, here is he's telling us we need to, to look at this carefully. We need to, have to make a careful comparison here between what drives us, what motivates us, and what motivates the legalists. And, and a careful examination of what motivates our pursuit of sanctification will reveal what truly captivates our hearts. If you really examine why you go to church, why you serve others, why you pray, why you love your wife, your children, you'll you'll see what's really down deep motivating that. And I pray if you're a true believer, you see that it's because you want to magnify Christ, because he captivates your heart. True believers are captivated by by Christ's work, not their own, not the praises of men, not their prideful position in life. We're captivated by what Christ has granted to us by his grace through his incarnation. So ask yourself, as we just look briefly at that text, what what truly captivates your heart? What what motivates your sanctification? Does does the love of the Savior, Jesus Christ, constrain all your works? Does the love of Christ dominate all your thoughts? Does the love of Christ infiltrate all your actions? Is that the motive that's down deep in your hearts? Is that what's captivating you? Or are you waiting for that person to say, you did a good job? Or here, take this position because you're so spiritual. What's really motivating your pursuits? If you're captivated by Christ, it will show up. It'll show up in your life. If you're captivated by Christ, you will confess how much he is worth to you through your life. Not for your praises, but for his. That's what drove the Apostle Paul to his ministry. The love of Christ captivated and motivated Paul. And he revealed, reveals that to us in Philippians 3, 4-11. In Philippians 3, 4-11, Paul reminds true believers to pursue sanctification by, thirdly, revealing... He does this, he reminds us by, by revealing his captivating, Christ-exalting confession of faith. His confession about Regeneration. This is how he he wants us to be reminded to pursue sanctification. Remember what Christ has accomplished for you. This captivates you. This motivates you. This drives you into sanctification with joy. Not guilt. Not to impress others. Because you want to exalt Jesus. Because what he's done for you is evident in your heart. And you want it to be evident in your life. So he says this in Philippians 3, 4. He says, if anybody could boast, that's what he's going to say here, basically. Okay, look, he's going to compare himself with, with these, these so-called you know, uh, Judaize, Judaizers. Um, if, if I, it's as though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And what he's basically doing here is saying, look, these guys, they, they pretend to be all, all holier than thou. But in reality, they don't even even stand up next to what I did in the flesh when I was actually a follower of Judaism. When I was in Judaism, he goes, I was the top guy. Yet, when I came to Christ on the road to Damascus, all that was erased. Because there was a great comparison between my righteousness and Christ, and mine fell short. And so he's saying, look, as we compare the true believer's pursuit and motivation... I could could compare myself to the Judaizers, but I'm not even going to do that, he says. And so he gives us a list of things that he's gained or looks like he's gained through his life. But yet he says in verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says, I I count all my self-righteousness as lost. I count my ancestral pride as lost, my orthodox approach to, to life as, as lost. My activity is lost, my morality is lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. In verse 8, Paul wants us to understand something here. He wants you to understand and me to understand that that the only thing he boasts in is Christ. He counts all of his human accomplishments as rubbish. And that's just a, a nice English word for manure. Okay? Garbage. Refuse. Excrement. In comparison to Christ... All my deeds are rubbish. And I only boast in Jesus. Now, if you stacked Paul's life up against mine, Paul looks superior to me. Much more devout. Much more faithful on the outside. But on the inside, he hated Christ. He persecuted Christ. He approached Christ as an enemy. And he says, When I was like that, I was only externally religious. My heart hadn't been conformed to Christ. My heart hadn't been changed. But as a result of God's grace, my heart is changed. And therefore, my heart being changed, my body wants to change, my life wants to change. I want everyone to see the change of the resurrected power of Christ in me. So in verses 10 and 11, that's what he's actually saying. He says... I I depend on this faith, right? In verse 9, that I have in Christ and His righteousness. In verse 10, he says that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His suffering, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. In in 10 and 11, Paul is speaking of the out-resurrection, especially there in verse 11. The phrase is only found here in the New Testament. He's not talking about a literal bodily resurrection here from the grave. Because he's going to get that eventually. He knows that. He's saying, I want this now. And what he's simply saying is, he uses the phrase, I I, I want the out resurrection to be displayed. He wants to live out his promised new life in Christ. Visibly. Paul's saying this in verse 11. "Paul, Paul wants his life to be the revelation of the resurrection. That's what he's saying. That's the true believer's motivation. That's why we pursue Christ-likeness. That's why we pursue sanctification. That's why we press on in good works. Is so that we can reveal the resurrected power of Christ through our lives. That's what Paul's saying in this whole passage. He's boasting in Christ. He's longing for the outward display of Jesus' life to be made manifest in and through his life. He's longing to display the glory of Jesus, not just in heaven in the future, but here on Earth, through his new birth, through his regeneration. Paul, Paul in this text, I think, is very fascinating. He's, he is the epitome of the Old Testament legalists. He says, "This was my life. This was my testimony, but this doesn't capture my heart any longer." I had all this I could boast in, but all that I count as rubbish compared to the surpassing grace and knowledge of Christ Jesus. He, he's absolutely captivated by how Christ's work secured him eternally and transformed him temporally. Does this not amaze you and me? It, it should amaze us. You and me, sinners. Sinners can do things that honor and glorify Christ here on earth. That's phenomenal. That is phenomenal. It's captivating. It's motivating. It's, it's life-changing. He's, he's captivated by Christ's work. And that's what changes his works. That's what changes his life. So are you, are you captivated by this? Are you captivated by Christ's work on your behalf? True believers are captivated by the gospel of Christ. We're not captivated by our self righteous accomplishments. They're rubbish to us compared to knowing Christ. In verses four through eleven, Paul reminds us of that. He 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 reveals to us here his captivating confession. Isn't it amazing? I mean, this is the guy who who you know who can't go hardly a chapter in any letter he writes without magnifying Jesus talking about Christ's work yet Paul himself did more work than any other apostle wrote more epistles went to more places probably did more works but he says it was the Christ who was working in me that did this all glory be to God all praise be to Jesus he was captivated by this and it motivated him and and he knew that we needed to be captivated by this also Paul knew firsthand that that all of our attempts to please God apart from Christ must be denounced. They must be repented of as we pursue sanctification. We must make sure that when we pursue sanctification, we're not basing it on our performance, but we're rejoicing over Christ's. That's why I think he reminds us of this here, especially in verse 8. He reminds true believers to press on. Toward our goal by constantly confessing our trust in Christ's righteousness imputed to us. Not our self-righteousness. Not our rubbish. Look with me in 1 Corinthians 1. Here is an illustration of what Paul confessed constantly in his ministry. What he constantly confessed what he constantly trusted in, what constantly drove him to press on toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He says this in verse 26, and we could say this too, right? I mean, we we could write this to ourselves and say, for consider your calling, self, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Now, now aren't you, wait, are, as you read that, aren't you just amazed? Were, were many of you noble? Were many of you wise, strong in the world's standards? Yet God chose you. God chose you to be the one that he would use to magnify the work of Christ in the world. Malignant. thanksgiving, right? Verse 28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him. You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, look, we have things to boast in as we walk in sanctification, as we as we grow in sanctification and in spiritual maturity. We adopt more spiritual disciplines. We we serve others more faithfully. We care for the church more with more dedication and devotion. But ultimately, we have to come back here and say it's because of Christ who became to us wisdom from God on how to do this. It's because of Christ's righteousness that was imputed to us that we are set apart and we are redeemed and we want to do this. This is what caused Paul to pursue his calling with confidence. This is what causes us to pursue our calling with confidence. Christ is doing this through us. Do Do you and I realize sometimes The power that is in us. We have the dunamis of God, the power of God unto salvation in us. We can profess it, we can declare it, we can also show it to others that God saves sinners like me and like you. That's that's why we pursue sanctification. We have this power residing in us, and that's our confidence. It's not in our performance. Because even in our failures, we come back to this confidence, Christ overcame my sins. Christ made me able. Christ makes me worthy. To God be the glory. Right? Even when I fall short, I magnify Christ, trusting in His work, not my own. In in Philippians 3, go back there with me. In Philippians 3, 12-16, Paul reminds true believers to pursue sanctification by, fourthly, Repeating his confident declaration about why he pursues sanctification. He, he is repeating a confident declaration here in 3, 12 to 16. He says, not, not that I've already obtained this. So he's basically repeating what he had just said in the previous text. I, I haven't already got this. I'm not already mature. I'm not already perfected. That's what he's saying. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. This is why I do what I do. I press on. I pursue this because Christ Jesus has made me his own. That that is a confident declaration, is it not? I am not mature yet but I'm going to press on because I have been purchased by God through the blood of Jesus Christ, my Lord. That's my motivation. That's why I pursue sanctification. Then he says this, verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. This is Paul expressing humility as opposed to the legalists. He says, I I, I don't pretend that I'm outwardly perfect because I know I'm not, right? But one thing I do, he says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He says, I press on. I I pursue this. I forget about what's behind me. I forget about my self-righteousness. I repent of that. I repent of my sin. I strain forward to the prize that Christ has purchased on my behalf when he made me his own. He's expressing confident humility here. Confidence in Christ, humbled by grace. He he wants to mature. He wants to continue. And he wants others to follow. See, as opposed to the legalists, they looked down on you. They condemned you. They held themselves over you. Paul says, I'm like you. I'm with you, brothers. I'm right in this walk with you. But as I press on, I want to set an example for you. I want you to see why I press on. I want you to press on with me, brothers and sisters. There's a reason to press on. There's a reason. And it's based on this confident declaration that he gives us here. He concludes his thoughts here by by giving us a confident declaration that true believers will press on to Christ's likeness. Isn't that amazing? One day, for sure, right, in glory you'll be conformed perfectly to the image of Christ. But that work began at regeneration. And it's progressively growing. The more you see of the gospel of God's grace, the more you are conformed to the image of Christ. He says, I am confident that you're going to do this. I'm confident I'm going to do this. I'm going to press on. Because Christ has made me his own. That's why we press on, brothers and sisters. Are you confident of this? Are you growing in sanctification motivated by this? Jesus made you his own. God Almighty, God of very God, God the Son, took on flesh and became a slave to serve in our place, become our substitute, to live our life in complete obedience from the heart to God the Father on our behalf. And his life was imputed to us. And his life was crucified on a cross in our place so that we could be made his own and conformed to his image and reflect his glory now and for eternity. That's why we press on in sanctification. We press on in sanctification. Here's the reason I think we ultimately press on, according to Paul here in Philippians 3. We press on in sanctification because we want to magnify our Lord Jesus Christ. We want to make much of Jesus. That's the motivation. That's why we pursue sanctification. We want to make much of the one who saved us by giving his life for us. We pursue the prize because we want the world to see this power at work in us. We want to see the world praise Jesus' name. We want to press on because we want to reveal how much Jesus Christ is worth to us. How much is he worth to you? Does the world see how much he is worth to you through your pursuit of him out of thanksgiving, out of humility, out of obedience? In Verse 12, Paul reminds us of something very important. He says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. He says, I press on because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He's telling us simply this, true believers, he's reminding us that true believers can be confident that we will obtain God's upward call because of Christ who began a good work in us and will bring it to completion. The good news, church, of the gospel tells us this. The good news of the gospel tells us that all God's children we will be conformed to Christ's image progressively and eternally by God's grace and for God's glory, right? Romans 8:28. Look with me there. Romans 8:28. This is what we know. And this is what we can confidently confess. By God's grace, for God's glory, we will be conformed to the image of Christ here and for eternity. Look what it says in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, here's God's purpose, right? God's purpose is to conform us to the image of his son. That's the purpose of your salvation. That's it. So all the bad things that happen in your life, all the good things that happen in your life, they're happening for this purpose and this purpose alone. Not for you to have a good life, a happy life, a comfortable life. That's not what it's about. All things work together for good to shape us and conform us and turn us to Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying here. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called and those whom he called, he also justified and those whom he justified, he also glorified. That is what we confidently confess as Christians, We will be conformed to the image of Christ, beginning at regeneration and complete in glorification. In in Philippians 3 and and in Titus 2, turn with me to Titus 2 quickly. In Titus 2, Paul reminds us that, that true believers, listen, true believers press on toward this goal, confidently declaring this truth. Because we are motivated to sanctification by God's grace. We, we confidently declare that our motivation for sanctification is grace-driven. See, this, this has to be what drives your sanctification. If, if, if grace doesn't drive you to magnify Christ, you'll become a legalist. You'll become a ritual observer of rules and regulations and traditions And you'll look good on the outside, but inwardly you'll be full of dead men's bones. Christ says, I've given you my life. The resurrected power of Christ resides in us. That that grace is what drives us, what motivates us to pursue holiness, righteousness. Look what it says in Titus 2. This is what Paul confessed even here. Titus 2.11. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Training us. Now, look, this is interesting. Grace shows up and grace changes us. When we receive God's favor, we are trained by this to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. See, sanctification has to be grace-driven. That's what he's saying here. As a result of God's grace to us showing up, we are trained by it to magnify Christ. Verse 13, we do this waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. See, being zealous for good works is the outflow of grace. It's what we do because we are graced by God, it's our confession, it's our passion. It's what drives us to repent of self-righteousness and trust in Jesus and tell others about him and serve the church and care for our spouses, take care of our kids. It's what trains us to renounce ungodliness. See, legalism and rules can't keep you from watching that program you shouldn't watch. But God's grace can. As you watch something, as you listen to something, as you partake of something, and you recognize Jesus died because of this. That turns me away from ungodliness and causes me to rejoice in God's grace progressively as I grow in the truth, being set apart to serve Him, to pursue His will, because He has done something for me that I could never do for myself. He has declared me righteous based on the obedience of Christ. Church, that's what Paul's reminding us of here in Philippians 3. He's reminding us today that true believers... We'll absolutely, confidently delight in and enjoy pressing on. Sanctification will be our passion if we contemplate the gospel of Christ. It'll be our passion because we have been set apart by God himself, by his grace. We've been set apart, according to Titus and Philippians 3, we've been set apart to reveal the power of Christ. The gospel of Christ, the glory of Christ, the love of Christ. We've been set apart to declare it in our hearts, but also through our lives. The inward desire that we have for holiness, the inward desire we have for repentance of self-righteousness, and, and the inward desire we have for pursuing what Christ has promised for us is evidence that we belong to him. It's evidence of the new birth. It reveals Christ's power at work in our Hearts, and it's through our lives that it is made manifest. The upward call of God is to reveal the glory of the gospel that has changed our hearts. The upward call of God is to reveal the gospel progressively through our lives. And, and the upward call of God reveals the gospel progressively in every aspect of the true believer's life. I mentioned marriage and parenting and ministries of contentment earlier. But listen, the upward call of God progressively transforms all those areas. Our marriages are set apart now as examples of Christ's faithful love for his people. Our parenting is set apart as an example of how Christ patiently directs and cares for his people. Our ministries are set apart as examples of how Christ sacrificed his life to serve sinners like us. Our contentment in life is set apart as an example of how Christ satisfies all our temporal desires and our eternal desires. And just knowing that Christ has made us his own should give us peace in the midst of every storm. It should make us content. If there's a lack of contentment in your life, it's because your eyes are not on Christ. If you're not at peace, if you're finding yourself in places of unrest, turn to Christ. Look what he's accomplished. Look what he's promised. Look what he's equipped you to do by his spirit. He loves you. He laid his life down for you. You can be content. He's going to keep you until the very end. He's going to perfect his love through you too. That's what sanctification is. It's the maturing of Christ's love made manifest to the world. Sanctification is simply the forgiven sinner's joyful pursuit of magnifying the power of the gospel here on earth. Sanctification does that through spiritual growth and spiritual disciplines, reading the word, fellowshipping with the saints, sharing the gospel. But listen, I I don't want I don't want you to misunderstand when I use the word pursuit throughout this sermon. This pursuit is not one that is sought after in our own strength. It's not a weary pursuit. It is the joy driven passion of the forgiven. It is the work of Christ manifesting itself through our lives. It's it's this joy-driven response to being forgiven by God's grace. It's not wearisome. In verse 13, it's interesting there in Philippians 3, he he says something very, very interesting. He says, I forget about what lies behind and I strain forward to what lies ahead. Paul says, look, I, I strain forward to the prize. It's not the prize that he purchased. It's not the prize that he earned. He's saying, I strain forward to the prize that Christ secured. Th- this is not wearisome. It's already been purchased by God through Christ. It's mine. I press on because of this. I was thinking about what that, what that would look like. And I was thinking about um, when, when my wife makes cookies for my boys or when my mom used to make cookies for me. And I remember leaning over her shoulder right, as she's putting the, the cookie dough into the oven. My boys do that all the time now when when Sherry makes cookies for them. They lean over her shoulder. They're 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 not weary looking over her shoulder. They're they're excited. They're driven by the joy that is awaiting them, right? The prize that they know is secured by mom's love. That's that's the kind of pursuit we're talking about here. We we press on for the prize that has been secured by Jesus' love. The love that set us apart now and forever by His grace. We press on. According to what he say, says here in this text even. We press on forgetting what lies behind. We, we press on now because there is no fear of condemnation. We are forgiven through Christ. We can now forget the sins of our past and lean into our promised prize. The prize of the upward call to magnify Jesus. Church, the true believer's future according to what Paul is saying, is gloriously bright because the light of God's Son has removed all the stains of our sin. And the blood of Christ has washed us clean and His love has made us His own. How did He do that? How did this occur? Jesus won the prize. But there was more to it than that. This occurred because Jesus received the punishment we deserved. Jesus won the prize we could never earn because our deeds are rubbish. But his deeds are righteous. And they were imputed to us by God's grace. Christ secured our inheritance. Christ purified our consciences. And Christ empowers our service. He did all that and he has promised all that because he pressed on to the place called Golgotha in our place. There he fulfilled all righteousness for us. And he granted to us the prize of his righteousness forever. So, brothers and sisters, my exhortation to you this morning is to press on toward the goal of the upward call of God because, because it has been secured for you by Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why you do it. Let, let this truth Motivate your faithfulness to our fellowship. Let this truth motivate your evangelism of the lost. And let this truth motivate all your spiritual disciplines with joy. Rejoice. There is no condemnation. You are forgiven. And pursue magnifying that. The life that God has granted you in Christ. Let's pray.